Amen. So this is our last class. Um, we have zipped through the storyline of the scriptures now in six weeks, um, covering everything from the Garden of Eden all the way up to the crucifixion. And I hope by this point it's become um, somewhat clear, if it wasn't already, that the scriptures are a unified story. It's an epic story with a bunch of rabbit trails along the way, um, all of it useful for our instruction and edification, but there is very much a storyline. There is very much a uh, a backbone to um, the scriptures that ties everything together. And it culminates in Jesus. Um, And really, as we saw last week, in his crucifixion. All the scriptural threads are tied up and brought to their necessary end in Jesus And again, more primarily, his death on the cross. So, the Old Covenant Scriptures um, can be classified under the heading of promise, and the New Covenant Scriptures can be classified under the heading of fulfillment. So, Old Covenant promise, New New Covenant fulfillment, and that's probably too tidy a distinction to make, but it's still serviceable, right? It's, it's, still, it's still good enough to, to be useful. Um, God made promises to the patriarchs, and they have been accomplished and fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. Um, and if we had to propose a master theme for the entire scriptural story, remember we've covered different things um, like uh, the priesthood, the temple, um, we talked a lot about uh, spiritual beings and all that good stuff that's there in the scriptures, but if we had to take all those and put them under one heading, we might just want to say that it's kingdom. If you can uh, choose one, I think it would be the theme of kingdom. And that's because it's large enough to encompass all the other themes. And it was, of course, the message that Jesus came preaching. Uh, repent. Um, and believe in the gospel, or, or repent, uh, the kingdom of, of God is at hand, and believe in the gospel, some variation of that. So that's what Jesus came preaching, it was his central message. Now it's worth noting that the kingdom occupies a central place, if not the central place in the gospels. So if you were to do a brief survey of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you'll find that is very central to the story that they tell is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or um, just simply the kingdom in the gospel of John. It's very central to the story that the gospels are telling. Um, And yet, it almost entirely drops from view in the other New Testament writings, uh, namely the epistles. So you go to say, Romans, right, which is uh, the most thorough of all Paul's writings. And he basically mentions the kingdom, I think, once in Romans 14. It doesn't come up a lot. Um, It comes up in Colossians 1. It comes up in 1 Corinthians 15. 
Um, but it's just a handful of scriptures, right? It's not at the forefront. And this is a curious feature of the text, very prominent in the Gospels, not so prominent in the other writings, that has provoked not a little theological debate. And now many have posited their answers, but I think uh, political theologian Oliver O'Donovan gets it right. So I've got this quote um, under the introduction heading there on your paper. He says, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God, but the apostolic church did not. It told the story of what happened when the kingdom came, its conflict with the established principalities and powers, and its vindication at God's hand through Jesus' resurrection. What the church proclaimed was not what Jesus proclaimed because it stood on the other side of that great crisis which his proclamation provoked. That should read proclamation instead of proclaimed. Anyway, in other words, the epistles and the early church are not preoccupied with the kingdom of God like the gospels are for one simple reason. The kingdom had already been established. So the Gospels tell the kingdom story, its arrival, its struggle, and then its victory, and the epistles pick up in the aftermath. That's why we don't have them talking so much about the kingdom, because it's already a presupposed reality. And so the events that separate the promise of the kingdom and its fulfillment is the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. So prior to those events, the kingdom was not. After those events, it is. And so our point is this. The promises to the patriarchs, everything hoped for in the Old Covenant dispensation has come to its completion in Jesus. Now this was demonstrated in part last week. Our principal themes, the temple and priesthood, uh, the king and kingdom, inheritance and exaltation, they all met in the cross. And there, in the most unexpected manner, the story came to its close, and it received a new beginning. Now that is central to uh, to the purpose of this lecture. That theme is central to the purpose of this lecture. Because now as we turn to the church and move beyond the church into the age to come, we do so not necessarily continuing the old covenant story, but starting a new one. I really want to strike that note of fulfillment in Christ. Things have come to their culmination. It's all been completed in Him, and we're starting um, a new story. Now, it's easy to misunderstand what I'm saying, so uh, maybe allow me to clarify a little bit. There is a continuity, right? We can't leave behind um, the promises that God made to the patriarchs, right? And we don't have any intention to leave that behind. Um, But there's also a discontinuity. Something genuinely new has come to be. So I was thinking about it just before you guys came about maybe how to divide this. And maybe you could say, rather than starting a new chapter, um, and just kind of carrying along the story, we're starting a new book in the series. Uh, so you could say, 
Adam is chapter 1, and then you get to Moses and David and the, 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 the prophets, and these are all new chapters, and then you get to Jesus. He's the culmination of that first book. It all comes to a close there. And then you could say, now when we're starting to talk about the ascension, or the resurrection and the ascension, that we're starting a, a, new, a new book in the series. So there's the continuity, but there's also some, something new is upon us. We're, we're coming into new territory. And it's the difference, again, between promise and fulfillment. Um, and so maybe we'll put it this way. The old age comes to a close in the cross, and a new one begins in the, resur- begins in the resurrection. And you get this um, in the New Testament. So in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul will say something like, um, something like the, age, the, the end of the ages has come upon us. So he understands himself at being, being at this hinge point in history. Um, one age is coming to a close and a new one is beginning. Um, then there's overlap there. Um, but that's how he understands himself. And, and, and the Apostle John will say something really similar. So he'll say in 1 John 3 or 1 John 2 that um, this world is passing away. And there's a new one coming into existence, right? So there's, a, there's a, this crisis that has happened. One order is coming to a close. A new one's beginning. And I really want to strike that note because Jesus is the hinge point. One, that story has been completed, truly completed, and we've moved on um, into fulfillment. So the promises that are made to the patriarchs still have bearing upon the story, but only as backstory, right? So you could talk about our first four lectures in the class as being um, Jesus's prehistory, um, the backstory, right? We're, we're, we weren't part of that history. We're now post-history, but we need to know that because it's necessary context to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. So, prehistory. And so, all those mighty figures, uh, Abraham and, and David and uh, um, Jeremiah and Isaiah and before them, Adam and Noah and so on and so forth, those mighty figures have been eclipsed in Jesus. Now, they remain relevant, but only to the extent that they relate to him, Right? Um, I'm a little uncomfortable with, I don't want to sound like we're leaving, we need to leave the old covenant behind, because that's wrong. Anytime the church has ever done that, it's always got the gospel wrong. We need it. But again, what I'm trying to do is strike that note of fulfillment, right? We're coming into something new. Is that clear? Any confusion on that one? Pretty, hopefully straightforward enough? Okay. Okay. So that framework, promise and fulfillment, um, basically forms the, outside, uh, the outline of our lecture tonight. Um, we've traced how the central scriptural themes terminate in Jesus, and now it's our task to map their fulfillment. And um, we'll do so under those two headings, church and then kind of the, the age to come. And, and they'll blur into one. It's not a very tidy distinction, but you'll be able to notice them. So the first part... First thing I want to talk about in our um, lecture tonight is this theme of adoption, or probably um, more in line with what we've talked about in the past, it's the theme of human maturity. 
Now, if you can remember back to our first lecture, we stated that God created the human race not in an entirely mature state, but as infants, right? Adam and Eve lacked wisdom. Um, they had not, they weren't created perfect. Um, they had to mature into the inheritance that God uh, set before them. There's a difference between perfect and innocent, right? They were innocent, but not perfect. And so it was God's plan and the purpose of humanity to reach its full maturity and when it reached that maturity, then receive its inheritance, right? The keys to the kingdom, remember? So humans were created as lords over heaven and earth, but only as a destiny to be met and accomplished in time. And now that divine plan was interrupted by the serpent but it was never abandoned. Um, rather than the plan to bring the human race to maturity being derailed and completely going off the tracks, you could say it took a detour. Um, we, we're still going to get to that goal, but it took a way longer to get there because of the serpent's actions. So as the apostle frames it, um, all human history up to the incarnation was one long process of maturation. So if we, if we leave the garden and then we fast forward to the incarnation, all that time in between is the time of maturation. Now I'm getting that um, from Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 and 5. Let me read it to you. It says, So also, we, while we were children, were held in bondage. Well, again, there's our theme, held, we were children, we're not mature yet. It says, while we were children, we're held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. A confusing statement, but I think probably best summed up as spiritual entities, spiritual beings under these elemental things. And this is just the translation the NASB has chosen. There's other ones that are maybe more fitting. Anyway, while we were children, we're held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So the human race prior to the incarnation was still immature. We were children, the apostle says, still occupied with childlike things the pagan religions, and even the Mosaic Covenant. If you read Galatians 3, you'll find that that's the argument Paul was making. These, those were things fit for children. But at the apex of history, at the fullness of time, the human race takes a dramatic step forward. It receives, the Apostle Paul says, the adoption as sons. So before we were children... We're not ready to receive our inheritance, but at the fullness of time, in this one event, the human race takes this dramatic step forward and it can receive its inheritance now. And of course, that event is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In Him, the human race is brought to its maturity that God had intended from the beginning. And thus, it's qualified now to receive its inheritance. So, look at what the Apostle Paul says next. These verses are on your paper. He says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So we said when human, the human race was ready to, um, was fully mature, it could receive its inheritance, right? That's what this verse talks about. We've become sons in Jesus Christ through adoption. And now, because we're sons, if a son, then an heir through God. An heir, right? What does an heir receive? An inheritance. So now we're ready to receive what we have uh, been promised from the beginning. So having become sons, we've also become heirs. We'll come to that theme later, but our purpose at the moment is to recognize that Jesus is, um, I'll use a Greek word, the telos or telos of humanity. Um, it means, we don't have a good translation for it, but it means something like the, the, the culmination, the aim, the, the whole point of it. So Jesus is the He's the point. He's the culmination of humanity. He, he, was, he represents that maturity which God intended for us in the beginning. So in him, we might say, the human race, namely those who believe and are baptized, um, the human race reaches its destiny. Jesus is the point, right? We, we talked about that last week. He's the last Adam. This is where the story's been going all along. Um, if Adam didn't sin, I mean, that's a silly question because he did and we don't know what would happen otherwise. This is the image he would have been made into, what Jesus is. So it becomes, um, the human race does, here at the fullness of time, what it was created to be from the very beginning. So maybe we could put it this way. Adam represents the beginning of the human race, its creation. Jesus represents the end of the human race, its destiny. Jesus is the true human, as, of course, the last Adam. So Adam is the beginning of the human race, um, its creation, and Jesus is the end of the human race, its ultimate destiny. And thus the true nature of the maturity that God intended for humanity emerges in the Incarnation. Humans were created as lords, we talked about that, but we hardly understood just how glorious this destiny is um, and what God actually intends for us. It's now Jesus' humanity and not Adam's that the human race is being transformed into. Um, so listen to the apostles' words in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, these are, this is verse 45 through 49. He says, So also it is written, the, last, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That's Jesus. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so are those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So there Paul is describing what I'm struggling to get at. And it's that Jesus is the destiny now of those who believe of the church. We're going to be conformed into that image. So Adam was created from the dust and into him 
God breathed his own breath. So obviously he's regal. And in a very real sense, um, we could say God-like even. Right? He's made in the image of God. But the last Adam, he outstrips the first Adam. He outdoes him to an extent that we could have never anticipated. Now, he's from the dust, Jesus is. He has a human body just like we have a human body. But he's not animated by the divine breath because he's animated by the divinity itself. He's the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. He is God himself. So, human nature is raised up from something already quite exalted, dust and the divine breath, to something truly beyond imagination. That is the meeting place, place rather, between God and man, right? We're, we're, we're stepping into unprecedented territory. And so as descendants from the first man, we naturally bear his image, right? We're in the image of Adam. Um, we bear the earthly image. But as descendants of the last man um, in faith and in Uh, the incorporation of the Holy Spirit, we supernaturally bear His image, the heavenly one. So the biblical formula goes something like this. As the head, so the body. What happened to Jesus will happen to us. As Jesus' humanity was united to God, so too our humanity will be united to God. So we're no longer, as the psalmist says, a little lower than the angels, Psalm 8, but highly exalted above them, right? We, 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 we've, again, we, we've left merely the fulfillment of these promises, and, and we've come to something far greater now, um, the transfiguration of these promises. The, 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 the destiny, the purpose for which God created humanity is far greater than we could have imagined. Anyway, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 um, The scripture talks about this exaltation which God has made for humans. He says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, um, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So humanity is no longer merely humanity, right? But it's seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Jesus. Now, where is Christ Jesus? Where did did he ascend to when he uh, went into heaven after his resurrection? He went to the divine throne. He went and sat down at the right hand of God. Now, the spiritual powers and authorities, um, not merely angels, but the whole host, principalities, powers, Remember, they used to keep charge of humanity until it reached its maturity. Now, in Christ, that maturity has been reached. The spiritual authorities are no longer um, over humanity, but we're over them because we're in Christ. So they populate the various realms of heaven, traversing its lowest spheres to its very heights. But there's one place that even the most exalted creatures don't go to. And what's that? It's the throne, right? They just, they don't occupy that place. They don't sit on the throne. They don't, they don't occupy it. So who is on the throne? Well, it's very clear. 
God and a human, his son, Jesus. So there's two people, not two people on the throne. Um, Jesus, they're, they're, they're united. You guys get what I'm saying. But it's God and the human Jesus that are there on his throne. Uh, Colossians 3.1. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So, Christ is seated there, and what does Colossians tell us? Where are we? We've been raised up with Christ. He says, so keep seeking the things above. Set your mind there where, uh, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So we'd be mistaken to suppose that um, to be raised up in Jesus' resurrection and ascension merely means restoration. It, in fact, means transfiguration. Humans occupy an earthly throne, um, to be sure, right? We're, we're the most exalted creatures on this planet. There's no question about that. But that earthly throne pales in comparison to the heavenly throne. And it's truly beyond imagining, beyond searching out what humanity will become in Christ. So, Again, I want to take us back to Genesis and think about this theme of maturity and receiving our inheritance. We were thinking, okay, we'll learn the fear of the Lord, and when we do, we'll receive the keys to the kingdom. It'll be great. But in reality, it's something much greater than that. God wants us not merely to rule on earth, but to rule beside him at his right hand. I'll leave, uh, I'll leave it to John Christosom. Um, to, to, to really put this in perspective for us. He says, We are raised up into heaven who seemed unworthy even of earth. So he's speaking of us. We are exalted above the heavens. We arrive at the kingly throne. The nature which caused the cherubim to keep guard over paradise is seated today above the cherubim. Was it not enough to be elevated above the heavens? Was it not enough to have place among the angels? Was not such a glory beyond expression? But he rose above the angels. He passed the cherubim. He went higher than the seraphim. He bypassed the thrones. He did not stop until he arrived at the very throne of God. So you see what Christosom's saying there. As the head, there goes Jesus, passed far exalted above every name that's in heaven or on earth or under the earth. There goes the head and then there goes his body. We too occupying that very place at the right hand of God, um, and human nature being uh, finally in Jesus reaching its true uh, maturity. Now, what that is, we can't say. I mean, First John three, the apostle says that uh, we don't know what will be, but what we do know is that when He appears, we'll be like Him. So the point I'm making is simply this. Whatever happened to Jesus is going to happen to us. We'll, we'll share that same destiny. Um, and when my mind tries to comprehend that, I just don't have anywhere, I don't have anything to grasp on because you think about Jesus' union with the Father, with God himself, being God himself, and his exaltation. And then, I don't know, what does it mean for us to be above the angels? I, I mean, 
It's truly beyond um, searching out. Anyway, that's one part of our um, of our story of, of it coming to a culmination. But you see how then when we get to the fulfillment, we kind of drop off into mystery. There's a part of it here, the future of this story, that's just, well, beyond where we're going to go. Um, any questions on that before we move on? Yeah, all right. I got myself into hot, some hot water teaching on this very thing a couple months ago maybe, and I put a paper together on it, kind of going into this theme in a lot more in depth. Um, if you'd like it, let me know. I can email it to you. Um, I stand by what I said. Anyway, um, the, uh, now we're moving to this next theme, the, 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 what I'm calling the people temple. And it's a natural transition from one to the next. Um, now where we come to the temple. So the garden and the tabernacle and the temple were merely prototypes, right? The true temple had always been the body of Jesus Christ. Um, They were always looking forward to the ultimate iteration in Christ, where divinity and humanity met as one. We're not talking merely a place that we go. We're not talking about, um, you know, this sort of um, localized presence of God in like a, a building, but truly God himself arriving in human flesh. Remember John 1.14, he tabernacled among us. So, the temple, its true iteration is realized in the human body of Jesus, and then it's extended to his church. Now, the logic there is really simple, um, because the church is what? The body of Christ. He's the head, and we're the body. The head is exalted into heaven, And we now are the temple because we're united to him, right? That's that's Paul's logic in Galatians 3. We're baptized into Christ and being baptized into him, we now clothe ourselves with him. We're his body, right? And therefore, as his body, we're this new iteration of the temple, right? We're the temple 1, 2, 3, 4, 5.0 now, the church, right? We're the, 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 the last... Not the final, but the, the most, uh, most recent um, iteration of the temple. And I guess if you want language for this in the New Testament, one of the chief passages is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. So he says, And coming to him, that's Jesus, as to living, a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as spiritual houses for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, just about every major religion has some sort of center, right? It has a, a temple, a holy place. So, in Islam, that's Mecca. In I'm not familiar with the other religions too much, but... They're sites of pilgrimage, right, where they go and this is a hot spot for the divine presence. But Christianity, um, we, have, we have no temple, right? We have no holy place. Now, Rome obviously occupies a, a really important role for the Roman Catholics, but it's not, it's not a temple. It's not anything like what you find in the other religions. And 
the obvious reasons, because Peter says here, the actual members of the church, the humans that compose the church, um, were the temple. Each one of us individually is, Peter says, a living stone. Um, were people bricks, uh, human stones, um, with which the temple is being constructed. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone of that temple. And um, the apostles are, are the rest of that foundation. And then we are all stacked in our own place, um, creating the sanctuary for the Holy Spirit. So, as we stand now in our present place in salvation history, uh, the divine presence is not housed in an inanimate temple, uh, but in a living one. So his presence is not to be sought out there. Um, there is no, again, holy space for us. But the place that you know we come to find the divine presence, um, as ancient worshipers would have done in the temple, um, is in one another. Right? That, that's the logic that, that this temple theology is, is telling us here. Think of those Psalms where David will say, you know, I want nothing more than to go into your house and, and to dwell in the, in the house of the Lord forever because that's where your glory is. Right? That's where I can come to, to see God high and lifted up. That's where his beauty and his presence resides. Now, if we just take that and uh, transform it into this New Testament register, that's what we come to. Right? The, the place where God's glory dwells is here with one another, in our fellowship with one another, in our, um, our love and care with one another. This is, that's where it all comes together. And so now the church is the temple, um, the place where God's Spirit dwells. And of course, the individual believer is also a temple, um, 1 Corinthians 6. Um, and we're also the priesthood. So we're the temple and we're the priesthood serving in that temple. And again, that simple logic is at work here. As the head, so the body. Jesus was a priest, not according to the order of Aaron, a Levitical priest. He didn't serve in the actual temple um, of his day, but he was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And um, as his body, so is the church, right? We are priests according to the order of Melchizedek. And so through Jesus' sacrifice, that is his own life, giving it up in obedience to God, we are cleansed and we're made fit to enter the divine presence and to become priests, right? So you remember the priest having to go into the temple, they'd have to first be qualified to do it, be of the right lineage, and then they'd have to go through all these purity rituals, so on and so forth, so that they could serve in the temple, um, basically to be holy enough to live and dwell in God's presence. Now, that's essentially what happens with Jesus Christ. He's the temple and the priest, and he sacrifices himself to purify us and to make us priests that we might um, carry on the priesthood. And again, this priesthood is not restricted to a specific class of people, but it's extended at large, right? Every Christian is a priest. And as priests, it's our duty to minister in the temple. So what does that mean? How do we minister in this new iteration of the temple? Well, 
Peter says, it's to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Um, now, what are these spiritual sacrifices that we offer? Well, clearly they're not animal sacrifices. In fact, we learn from the Old Testament, the Old Testament itself, in passages maybe like Psalm 40 and Psalm 50, that animal sacrifices weren't really ever pleasing to God. You know, in Psalm 50, he says, what do I need your sacrifices for? He says, I, I have all the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I don't need you to feed me, right? I don't need your sacrifices. So they were never pleasing to God. Instead, what he says in Psalm 40, the sacrifices that God really wants is obedience. What he really wants is love. So you already see that peeking through in the Old Testament. And of course, it comes to its completion in the church. The former sacrifices and the former temple were shadows. They weren't the substance. Christ's obedience, a life that is rendered to God in true and honest love, was the true sacrifice, and it's become the pattern for our sacrifice. So listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. I don't know if you kind of maybe are tempted to think this way, but I certainly am, is that the sacrifices in the Old Covenant were the real sacrifices. There seems something more tangible about, you know, slitting an animal's throat, bleeding it out, chopping it up, and, you know, literally barbecuing it. That's what a sacrifice was. The worshipers would come, they'd burn half of it to God or a specific part of it, and then they'd eat the other part, the generally the sacrifice. It was a barbecue, and it signified fellowship and unity with God. Um, that seems more tangible than spiritual sacrifices, but that's the, actually the wrong way around. Ours are the true sacrifices. Ours are what God wanted from the very beginning, and what are these sacrifices? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us two things. One, the sacrifice of praise, thanksgiving. And if you go to Psalm 50, remember the one where I said, God doesn't, you know, he says, I don't want your bulls and goats. I have everything I need. And then what does he say in Psalm 50? Well, he says, um, call upon me in the day of trouble and I'll deliver you. That's, that's how you honor me. Lift up the voice of thanksgiving. So there's, this, there's one sacrifice. And the other is um, sharing and um, and essentially good works. These are sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And um, this is where we find ourselves in salvation history. Now, there's one more temple, right? Um, it's not explicitly called a temple, but we can infer. It's in Revelation 21 and 22, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. Um, now, we know this because, one, it's called the bride of Christ. Um, the bride of Christ is obviously the church. The dimensions of this temple, um, if you map them out, they're a perfect cube. Um, what are the other cubes in the Bible where there's that dimensions? Anybody know? The Holy of Holies. It was a perfect cube. Those are its dimensions. So we're getting some hints about this city that's descending. It's a perfect square, perfect cube, it's the bride of Christ. It's the city that um, its, court, its foundation, um, 
John tells us uh, is uh, on inscribed there are the names of the apostles, right? If you read um, Ephesians 2, um, the church is built on the foundations of the apostles, right? So we're getting a clear vision of what's going on here. So the church is like this temple coming down from heaven. And then we're also told that in the city there is no temple because the lamb is the temple. And so the vision that we kind of get is the one similar to 1 Corinthians 15, where it says that in the end, when Jesus has done all his work, he'll hand over the kingdom to God the Father. And it says that then God will be all in all. God will be all in all. I don't know how to understand that, um, but it clearly is this, in some sense, this merging of, of the two realities, right? So that God is all in all. He, he, there's not any division between, there, there's like a, I, anyway, I'm lacking words to describe it, but you see that's the last iteration of the temple where literally everything becomes um, uh, charged with the divine presence in, in one way or another. So, there's, go ahead. I think that's probably the right way to put it. Yeah, heaven and earth coming together as one, um, and they're not being, uh, I don't know, the barriers that sin has erected between those two. Um, I, what confuses me is when he says God is all. So I can understand God is in all. You know, it, again, everything is uh, uh, mediating God's presence. God is in all things but God is all in all. That's the other part that, I don't know, I'd have to study it. I never really have. I hope in the future to do a series on 1 Corinthians 15, but, um, but I think that's in the right trajectory. It's certainly something very profound. Any questions on the temple theme here? So you see how fulfillment and then transfiguration into the church. Now this next one, I want to move quickly through it. It's Pentecost and Blessing. Um, yeah, I do want to move quickly because we've covered this, remember, in uh, our second lecture when we talked about Babel and the promise to Abraham. Um, so I don't want to touch on it too much. But anyway, you remember the covenant promise, and that was, in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's why God called Abraham. And it was essentially um, a promise to reunite the human race um, according to the divine intention from the beginning. So that's what Babel tried to do, right? They built their tower, um, they built their city, and the whole goal was to bring all of humanity into this unity. God obviously judged that project, and he divided their tongues, and he scattered them into the uttermost parts of the earth. And then God calls Abraham and says, okay, now what they tried to do, I'm actually going to do that through you. All right, they try to make a name for themselves. I'm going to make a name for you. Um, we, we've covered uh, these topics. And then we looked how in Pentecost, when the Spirit descends upon the church, um, Acts chapter 2, um, that judgment of Babel is reversed. Again, they were united. They all spoke one tongue. Um, they all had one language. And God divided them, and that was the origin of all the different languages we have now. And I'm sure um, you, many of you, maybe probably all of us, have been in a different uh, 
um, either culture or nation itself. And that barrier that language creates, because from language comes another culture, another way of life, um, that's the most basic division that springs all these other ones. And if you, you know, we went to Italy for some time, and just that, that one language division makes you feel how much of an outsider you can really be. And uh, anyway, that's what led humanity into all these different divisions. At Babel, or at Pentecost, it's reversed. So the Spirit descends, the um, disciples spill out from the upper room into Jerusalem, and everybody who's there hears them speaking in his own language, right? So it's Babel reversed. And of course, it happens when the Spirit comes. Um, and so, and that's the beginning of the church. We have this new um, humanity and this unity that's accomplished um, in uh, the Spirit's descent upon earth. And this occupies um, a big theme in Acts, um, in Romans, in especially Galatians. So in the, gospel, or in, in the Acts of the Apostles, um, the story progresses in Jerusalem, right? And then the persecution comes, and the Christians in Jerusalem are then dispersed out into the Gentile world. And it's in Antioch for the first time that some spirit-inspired brothers just start preaching the gospel to Gentiles, and they believe, and the Spirit descends upon them. And that creates this firestorm in the church about, well, what do we do? Gentiles are believing now, and, and they're being received into the faith. Do they have to become Jews to be part of the Jesus movement? So do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to do the works of the law? Do they have to? And there's this big debate that runs on, and you have kind of two centers of power. You have those in Jerusalem, um, as Paul calls them, the men of James who were former Pharisees. And then you've got this kind of upstart movement in Antioch. And what you find is that there's some tension there between these two groups. And really between the Apostle Paul and probably even James, there was some tension about how to sort this thing out. And it comes to its conclusion really in um, Acts 15, where basically they say, no, you don't need to become Jews. And they just say, hey, two things, don't, don't do sexual immorality, don't eat food sacrificed to idols, and you're fine. And so this comes to this resolution, and, and the pivotal moment there is Peter's dream. Remember Peter's dream of the tent descending from heaven, and there's all these unclean animals on there, and the voice says, kill and eat, rise, kill and eat. And he's like, no, I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. And he says, don't call unclean what I've declared clean. And of course, it was speaking of the Gentiles, and then he had that whole run-in with Cornelius. And that's what um, Galatians is about. If you read Galatians, it's Paul arguing with the Judaizers who are telling the Galatians, no, you need to be circumcised. No, you need to eat kosher. No, you need to become a Jew, essentially. He says, no, you don't need to do any of those things. What you need to do is believe in Jesus Christ and be baptized. Those are the only, those are the only uh, qualifications on entry into this new thing. So what you have then is this new, this new movement begun in Christ um, that spreads out, not merely to this one people group, but to everybody. It's available to them all. And this is the culmination of, it, it's incredibly tiny, forgive me. Um, you have it on your paper there, um, the last verses at least. 
And I think the high point is here in uh, Ephesians 2. I'll read it for you. I'm beginning in verse uh, 13 here. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off had been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he's speaking to the Gentiles. You were far off, now you've been brought near. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. That's one long run-on sentence I want to stop. He says, Jesus is our peace, who's taken the both, both groups, Jews on the one hand and Gentiles on the other, and he says, and he's broken down the barrier, the dividing wall, and he's brought them together. And now there's one new man. There's not two groups anymore. There's one group. That's why I have a little bit of trouble with some of the dispensational theology that has, um, you know, Israel comes to occupy this, 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 uh, I think they just give them a little too much. It's like Israel and then the church under Israel. That's not, it's, it's together now. We're, we're one. There's no, there's no barrier anymore in God's plan. Now, God has a plan for the ethnic people of Israel, but Israel as its own entity, um, as, you know, this, it's, the church has become part of Israel now. That, that's the, theologically speaking, that's the point. Um, but that's beside the point. So the two groups become one, and it says... Um, where did I leave off? There we go. And might reconcile them into one body to God through the cross by having it put to death, by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. So he comes to the Jews who are, far, who are near and to the Gentiles who are far away and he preaches peace. He says, you, you're, you're one. Humanity is united now in Christ. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to one Father, a wonderfully Trinitarian verse. Through him, both Jews and Gentiles, through Jesus, have access to the Father by one Spirit. There's one body, there's one Son, one Spirit, one Father, one God. So then, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens speaking to the Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You're not second rate, you're not second class, you're fellow citizens and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, and whom you are also being built up together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. I mean, that, that's it. That's the vision where God breaks down this dividing barrier and brings the two groups into one, and thus the promise to Abraham is fulfilled. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither male nor female. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither barbarian um, uh, or what is the other one? Scythian or I forget what it is. But you're all one. One humanity. One people in Christ. And that's why I'm always harping about unity in the church, right? We can't be one people in baptism and then be, you know, attacking each other all the time and fighting and backbiting and so on and so forth. We're one people. And that obviously plays forward into the eschaton where you have in Revelation 5 and 4, um, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping at the feet of God. So any questions on that theme? Yes. 
my mind starts to really <laughs> build. And it was when I was young, mm-hmm. the first of ten things that I'm missing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no barriers in time either. I mean, that's a great way to put it. Those people long time ago, those to come, mm-hmm. we all live that away. Amen. Yeah, that's that that's a part I think we miss that sometimes too and um I'm so glad you brought it up because as much as we're brothers and sisters with one another, we're brothers and sisters with uh Abraham and Sarah and um all the a great patriarchs and matriarchs come before them. Uh, you know, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, right? Uh, he, Hebrews uh, 12. Uh, let's run the race with endurance. So yeah, it's not, time isn't a barrier either there. That's a, that's a great way to put it, yeah. And again, the ultimate culmination of this is when we're united as one um, with the head who's united as one, who, whom we're united to one with Jesus Christ, whom is united to God as one. So there's this whole concentric circle of unity that's going on there. Um, that's also John 17, Jesus' prayer there. So, any questions about that one? All right, moving on. Um, this one is the one I'm most hyped about. And it's uh, the theme of humanity's uh, royal vocation. Remember, Jesus was announced king in his crucifixion. Above him, the placard read, Jesus, the king, of Ju- the king of the Jews. Now, he was announced the king in his crucifixion, and he assumes his throne in the resurrection and ascension. So again, it turns out that this promised throne um, was more glorious than expected. We knew that this Davidic king was going to come, but we didn't know that he was going to literally be exalted to sit at the right hand of God. We were expecting maybe a throne in Jerusalem. Um, we were expecting, again, something like what David was, but Jesus is uh, the greater David. Now, um, there is some debate here about how the Davidic covenant is fulfilled in the New Testament, or if it's fulfilled at all, and um, I want to address that because I think we can make two mistakes. Now, the first um, mistake that we can make, and, and it's, I think it's a mistake, um, I, I think there's probably people in the church who would disagree with me on this, um, but I'll let you make up your own mind. And it's that the Davidic covenant is not yet fulfilled, that it's not yet fulfilled. That's one mistake. The second one is that the Davidic covenant is somehow spiritualized. So there's two ends of the spectrum, not fulfilled and then spiritualized. So the first option is to maintain that the Davidic covenant has not yet been completed. Um, this is the stance, I've mentioned them before, that dispensationalists take. Now, if that's a new term to you, it's basically the the dominant end times view, I would say, probably in the United States. So think people like Tim LaHaye, think people like, um, um, who's the other one? Well, if you think Tim LaHaye, you kind of know who run in those circles. Mike, do you know? Jerry Jenkins. Who's the other one? The famous one, um, late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey. Yeah, Hal Lindsey. Um, anyway, this is kind of this is what I was taught. I grew up in Calvary Chapel. They're very strong dispensationalists, um, and so I was taught the Davidic covenant wasn't fulfilled. 
Now, I'm probably oversimplifying their view, but I'm not being uncharitable. This is what they believe. Um, and, it, and it goes like this. Jesus has ascended into heaven as a priest. So he intercedes at the right hand of God, but he's not yet in, at the right hand of God as king, meaning the Davidic covenant is not yet fulfilled. Um, dispensationalists believe that the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled in the thousand-year reign when Jesus rules from Jerusalem. So Revelation 19, there's the mention of that thousand-year reign. They say that's when the Davidic covenant is fulfilled. That, um, well, it's based on, oof, I don't know, we'd have to, I've got books. I've got books on dispensationalism if you'd like to read them. Um, but yeah, it's a long, drawn-out process, and it's a lot about, you come to different interpretations based on different approaches to Scripture, and it's, it's very involved. Um, and I am sympathetic to that understanding. I really am. Um, and, and, and because even in the Davidic covenant, there's, there's already, there's a fulfillment, but not yet, right? We would say Jesus is, he is ruling from the right hand of God, but it's not complete yet, right? So, so they have, they have, uh, uh, support for their view. But I think the scripture in regards to the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is unambiguous. Um, it has been realized in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and more prominently, in his ascension. And in fact, the first sermon that's ever preached um, by the church, the Apostle Peter, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is its very theme. He says, Acts two thirty four and 36, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he says, the promise was made to David, but David isn't at the right hand of God right now. He says, Jesus Christ is. Therefore, Jesus, this man whom you crucified, is Lord and Christ. So he's the fulfillment and again, if you want to look at other passages, um, I think the, I should have probably done this one. I had it, and then I took it out for, to shorten things up, but it's um, Acts 13. Read the apostles. That's, that's the apostle Paul's first sermon. Read Acts 13, and I don't think you can come to any other conclusion. It's all based on David. Is David the fulfillment? or Is, 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 the, is, the, is Jesus the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant? Yes, that's Paul's answer. But you also find it in Ephesians 1, 1 Peter 3, Romans 1, uh, Matthew 28, Revelation 1, to name a few passages. And so I'll, I'll leave that for you to search it out. Um, so that's the one thing. We, 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 we want to maintain that the covenant has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Right? That's why I struck that note in the beginning. Fulfillment. We're starting a new chapter. So, uh, Jesus reigns as the Davidic king. Um, even now, and that counters the first mistake. And the other is a spiritualized understanding of his kingship. Um, so rather than this being an outright eschatology, it's more a notion that pervades kind of um, a lot of different views. And again, it goes something like this. Jesus is king, but he's a spiritual king. How many of you heard something like that before? Jesus is king, but he's a spiritual king. Um, and he claims his authority over only spiritual matters. And so his authority then is internalized. Um, it pertains only to, to 
uh, the hearts to things like faith and love and, and so on and so forth. Um, now, this spiritualized understanding, it bears some resemblance to the biblical testimony, but I think it's self-defeating. Uh, a spiritual king content to rule men's hearts is hardly the model that's portrayed in Jesus. Um, think of just one verse, for example, uh, Revelation chapter 1. It's either verse 4 or 3 where the apostle John introduces Jesus and he calls him first the true or the faithful witness, something along those lines. And then he calls him the ruler of the kings of the earth. Okay, we're not talking there about merely inward spiritual realities. We're talking about a political ruler over the kings of the earth. So I think this spiritualized view comes from kind of a a dualistic enlightenment worldview in which the spiritual realm and the physical realm are completely separated from one another. What happens in this realm stays in that realm. What happens in this realm stays in this realm. That was not the ancient worldview. Um, Anyway, what it does is assign Jesus authority over heaven, spiritual matters, and therefore his reign doesn't actually have bearing upon actual governments and actual historical happenings. You know, he's just content to rule in your heart. What happens out there in the political sphere, well, it's all going to burn anyway, so we don't need to worry about it. Um, Yeah, and I think that those are the scriptures are part of it. Um, so they would still submit to earthly government um, in in that sense. And so those those sure. Well, they'd make the distinction that again, Jesus is uh, that, that the promises are spiritualized in Jesus, um, and I don't know necessarily where. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it, and it can be, and it can come to that kind of uh, that kind of distinction. And again, I think just kind of um, the most prominent manifestation is simply that you know, um, yeah. Well, Jesus is; those are religious matters, and they're they're they belong in the religious sphere, and they don't belong here. That's kind of what this view facilitates. Um, and so, because, like the point you were making, his kingdom because it doesn't lay claim to the same ground that earthly rulers occupy, it leaves them undisturbed and free to do as they please. And the result is that our faith becomes irrelevant. It's merely about personal commitment or personal contentment and inspiration, right? Uh, It's about me, you know, dealing with suffering. It's about me living, um, you know, living a good life. And it doesn't have, you, you lose the perspective beyond the individual and, and their inward needs. Um, so rather than challenging anything, all it can do is kind of reaffirm the status quo. Um, and of course, earthly rulers would be happy um, to accept such a king, right? <laughs> he can have his inward kingdom um, while we run roughshod over the entire earth. Um, one, of my, one, of, uh, one of the theologians that I profited a lot from, he, he, he kind of put it this way. He said, kind of pointing out the distinction here. He says, wherever the Apostle Paul went, he started a riot. 
claiming Jesus is Lord. And he says, wherever I go, they serve me tea, right? It's, it's a difference in, in approach. The Apostle Paul's message was, I mean, it was like dynamite laid at the foundation of the Roman Empire. So, all that, you know, a spiritual king um, is a capitulation to the Davidic covenant in its most basic level. A more biblical understanding is that Jesus does reign as king, and that his reign is not merely spiritual, but concerned with real historical matters. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All human authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the church's mission and subsequently humanity's royal vocation, is rooted in Jesus' supreme and uncontested authority. All authority, not only in heaven, but on earth, currently belongs to Him. And so what this means is that, quite simply, earthly rulers and authorities and kingdoms are accountable to Jesus' rule. If Jesus is Lord, if He's the ruler of the kings of the earth, we can come to no other conclusion. Our president, the president of Russia, the president of Brazil, the president of China, the king of Saudi Arabia, every ruler that is, is accountable to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, not merely just you're accountable in the sense one day you will be judged by him. You're accountable in the sense that your kingdom, your domain ought to be ruled under his dominion according to him. So again, Oliver O'Donovan this book has been my favorite book for the past two years. Um, the Desire of the Nations. In his book, he says, The kingly rule of Christ is God's own rule exercised over the whole world. That must be the primary eschatological assertion about the authorities, political and demonic, which govern the world. They have been made subject to God's sovereignty in the, exalt, in the exaltation of Christ. So consider a passage like Colossians 2, where it says that Jesus has triumphed over the principalities and powers in his um, resurrection, in, in the cross. He's, he's made a public display of them. Um, and then another passage like Ephesians 1, where it says that all authority and power and rule and dominion has been subjected under Jesus. Now, those would lead us very clearly to say, not only in heaven, not only in the spiritual realm, but on earth. They're all accountable to him. They're all being brought under his authority. So again, the prime ministers, presidents, kings that exercise authority are themselves um, under Jesus' authority. They're called to recognize his authority and to submit to it. Look at uh, Psalm chapter 2. This is probably the most, um, the most thorough messianic kingly psalm in the entire probably in the entire Old Testament. Anyway, it says, verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. A little bit of context. It's just been talking about God raising up his own king, the anointed one. So he says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So without this element, the subjection of earthly rulers, the Davidic covenant is incomplete. 
It was a universal kingdom that was promised, and it's a universal kingdom that Jesus reigns over now. And so this brings the church into the discussion. It's the church's mission to bring the nations to acknowledge the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. How? By making disciples of the nations. We might put it this way. The church is an empire with its capital and its king in heaven. And it expands its borders through making disciples by bringing them to faith and baptizing them into its uh, community. So Jesus is the commander and we're his army. We're sent into the nations to conquer in his name. And of course, it's not an earthly kingdom. We talked about that last week. He doesn't conquer by force and arms, but by the proclamation of the good news and by martyrdom. So it's our task to conquer as Jesus conquered. That's through the cross. And for us, that means self-giving love. Now, um, there's more to say here. I just want to make a note um, because I can't help it, is that I think, I think this vision of the Davidic covenant would lead to some, if, if, let's say if we could just put it in its perfect ideal situation, some um, relation between the church and the state where the church's spiritual authority is recognized over a nation's um, activities. So the perfect example of here is Ambrose of Milan in, um, in uh, the 4th century. So the Roman Empire had become Christian, right, under, uh, under Constantine. Thank you. They had become Christian under Constantine, and then emperors had gone on and of course, emperors do what emperors do. That's unrighteous stuff. And one of the emperors, um, I think he went and what he did was he slaughtered um, his enemies or, you know, he, you know what emperors do. And basically what Ambrose said is, unless you don't repent, you, you can't come here and receive communion. Uh, unless unless your, the way you run your empire is brought into line with the reign of Jesus Christ, you have no part with the church. And it's the most, um, I, I just love the story. Um, the emperor came in civilian clothes and repented, not as an emperor, but just as a normal civilian, um, like just like everyone else, repented, and then finally Ambrose would administer to him communion. I think, you know, our way of dividing church and state, just it doesn't make sense according to the biblical vision of the Davidic covenant. Um, where there are two distinct spheres where they don't really operate with one another. But anyway, that's just neither here nor there. So um, at this point, we're, we're, we're in the in-between. Um, Jesus is indeed king, but that, king hasn't been, that, that his kingdom hasn't been completely established. All things are his, and yet... He's still bringing things under subjection. So um, let me move quickly here. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 15, verses two and four, 24 and 25. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So Paul describes Jesus' reign here in the present time. He's putting his enemies 
that is all rule, all power, and all authority under his feet. In other words, he's bringing them into subjection under his authority. A cosmos that had gone astray and turned mutinous is being reigned in and restored according to its original intention. And um, I realize I've been babbling, guys, so I'm going to wrap it up with this theme here. Um, Because the last one's very short anyway. Um, So, the restored cosmos that Jesus is currently bringing under his subjection will become his inheritance. It's going to be the kingdom over which he reigns. Um, In Hebrews chapter 1, the unknown author of that epistle calls Jesus the heir of all things. Or rather, he says, the one whom God appointed as the heir of all things. Um, And honestly, we can take it even further. Uh, This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in heaven, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Listen, all things have been created through him and for him. So if we could strip that all-important question of why are we here down to its irreducible minimum, the reason that there is anything at all is because, or is that Jesus might have an inheritance. It's the Father's gift to His Son. It was created for Him. He's appointed as the heir of all things. And so all things are given primarily to Jesus, but through Him, they're made available to us as well. Jesus is the Father's Son, but in Him, we become Jesus' brothers and sisters and, what, the Father's children. Listen to the way the Apostle words it, Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we also may be glorified with Him. That's the same logic of that Galatians passage we looked, passage we looked at. Having become God's children by adoption, we've subsequently become co-heirs with Christ. He is the heir of all things, and in Him we are also the heir of all things. So His inheritance, um, whatever is in heaven on earth, that which is visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, powers, all that good stuff is ours also. So this is what it means to sit with Him on His throne. This is what it means to be exalted above the principalities and powers. But, according to the divine plan, we're a step behind our elder brother. We're a step behind him. He sits enthroned in glory, um, and we're still here below. It was for him the cross before it was the crown. His sonship came to expression first in humility and sacrifice. He humbled himself and became obedient, even, uh, even to the point of the cross. And only after that, that long road of obedience, did it open itself up to glory. So it seems that some sort of universal law that it's first descent and then ascent. And as it was for him, so it is for us. He has ascended to his glory, enthroned in majesty, and it's our turn to carry the cross. It's our turn to walk his road. 
and as his sons and daughters, it remains for us to learn obedience. And when that task is completed, then comes glory. Um, We've already talked about this passage. I won't read it. But Jesus, fixing his eyes um, on the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. And so it's something of a paradox, our royalty. We are indeed lords of the cosmos, as the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 3, all things belong to you. All things belong to you. Think about that. All things, everything, it's yours. And yet, even though that's true, we're servants and we're vagabonds upon the earth. No one said it better than Martin Luther. A Christian man is the most free lord of all, and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. We're lords and we're servants. Why? Because that's how Jesus did it. Our destiny as lords awaits, and even though it's true and real now, but it's our task in the meantime to travel the way of our elder brother, who came not to be served but to serve. And as the apostle says, if we suffer with him, We'll be glorified with him. That's the point. And anyway, I had some stuff about the new creation, but it was nothing substantial. It was just about how we don't really know. And uh, we have to just use those scriptural images. So, we're done. Um, Any questions about today's lecture? Anything um, at all so far? Um, And then we'll, if there's nothing, we'll wrap it up and say a few words about our next class. Okay. All right. And if there's any feedback, um, I'd love to know it. I want to make this a little bit better. I was a little um, uncomfortable with how much talking I did. I would like to have more discussion in these classes. So I'm going to try and incorporate that more into our next one. But anyway, if there's any feedback, I'd love to hear it. Um, And then the second thing is our next class, I'm going to have it done. I'm going to have it done by New Year. Um, so we can get into that. And basically the thesis of the class is that we're reading the Bible wrong today. Um, and that the historical critical method, um, where it depends upon, the meaning of the text depends on what the original author meant to his original people in that original time, is uh, basically not the right way to understand Scripture. And that uh, there's, a, there's a different way to read the Scripture, a more ancient way that the apostles practiced that would... Uh, be beneficial for us. So anyway, I'm going to go into that, and that'll be a lot of fun, a lot of polemics in that class, which will make it good for discussion. Um, And then I think what I'll do is have um, basically passages for you to go home, study, and then we can come back and talk about them. So anyway, I appreciate you guys. Thank you for hanging in. Let me say a quick prayer.